Alrighty, we are in James chapter 4, and the title is, Why We Have Broken Relationships. Uh, somebody had asked me, is uh, Sunday's message going to be any easier because the last couple of weeks have been so tough? I said, read it. Read it for yourself. No. Um, this, I mean, James is now in his stride, and he's going to bring some strong exhortations to this group of, of believers, these Hebrew believers that have been scattered abroad, and he's going to give them exhortation to focus in upon the Lord. And so we are going to look at that. But as you back up into chapter 3 just a little bit, we looked at that, those, those two lines of, of thinking. There's a, there's a line of thinking that says, you can walk in the wisdom that's from above and it's going to produce peace, it's going to produce a fruit of righteousness, or you can walk in the wisdom that is below and that's going to cause all kind of bitterness and envy and striving. And so as we move into chapter 4, of course there's no uh, chapter breaks in the original writing of these letters. They were added for our convenience and um, these verses were added as well and I'm, I'm very grateful for them. But you know, as you come to the end of verse 18 of chapter 3, you wouldn't have heard and seen in the original writing and chapter 4, verse 1. These were added for our referencing purposes. Well, with that, you can see that the context is so f still in mind. He's talking about a peace that's there. But then he's going to ask the question, well, where does wars come from then? Where do wars come from? Why do we have broken relations? And not the physical world wars, but the interpersonal wars that can happen. So we're going to take a look at that. We'll read verse 1. It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So the first thing I want to see is there's a problem with conflict. And this is a very simple point. I'm not going to overdevelop it, but I think it's important to say um, it's not okay to have conflict. It's not okay. It should never become normal that every relationship I have is in this battle mode of fighting and arguing, and this is just the way it is. I, we live in a fallen world, fallen people. So we're going to battle, and I'm going to win when I do it. That's just the way it is. No, the, the, the teaching of Scripture is there shouldn't be wars. There shouldn't be fighting. And notice that he says that the, right before you know, the first question, the first line of verse 1 is, from among you. He's not talking about out in the world. Inside the church, where are these fights coming from? Why is there this battle going on? Why is there this striving and contention and conflict? Unfortunately, um, this kind of fighting was present in the first century world and is still present in the modern church today. And you can find many places in the New Testament where the New Testament writers were addressing the conflict that had popped up at a local congregation. Now, how would you like to have been in one of those long local congregations and be known as two ladies that were fighting? Because we're, there's two ladies that are mentioned in Philippians chapter 4 that were not getting along. And, and Paul's like, you guys need to get along. So this is, this is an element of, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on, but you can just imagine the scene. And he's not content that there would be a conflict. And so if you've just settled into there's battle mode in home, there's battle mode in the church, there's battle mode in my relationships, well, that's not the way it should be. We read in Philippians 4, 2 and 3, 
I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Wow, what a way to be known, right? When you get to heaven and you meet Yodia, like, oh, you, what were you guys fighting about, by the way? I mean, inquiring minds want to know what was going on. Um, they're probably arm in arm, cheerfully uh, worshiping the King and the Savior. It won't be an issue. But these ladies were known for the fight that they were in. And through all of church history, they've been known for the fight that they, that they had. And he, he says, listen, help these ladies out. They were a part of the gospel when it first came, all right? Then they labored in the gospel. These were gospel-minded women. Their names are in the book of life. He clearly loves them and has a, a, a desire to see them walk in unity. And so he says, help them out. Don't, don't let them just continue to fight. And so... Yeah, we, we see that Paul says, you can't do this. You cannot allow and settle into fight mode. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, same thing, different church. I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? So again, we see that there's conflict there in Corinth. Paul's not willing to let that just ride out. Oh, well, it's Corinth, whatever they fight, that's what they do. No, he's like, you guys got to stop this. And I love the last phrase, the last you know, three, four words of that verse 3. It says, walking like mere men. So if you are in Christ, then you are not a mere man or a mere woman. You are one who has the spirit of the living God dwelling within you. And the expectation of how we conduct ourselves is nothing like what mere men should do. Jesus would put it this way. You know, oh, you get along with people who like you, not impressed. The world does that. Gentiles can do that. What impresses me is do this. Love your enemy. That's what I want you to do. Now, sadly, some of you may be in a place where your marriage feels more like a battleground than, you know, marital bliss. And there's just conflict. There's warring. There's fighting. And you're like, I just can't love her, you know, the way Christ loves the church. And I can't submit to him because it's so bad. Well, okay, then let's, let's bring it down to the very last bottom rung behavior level. Love your enemy. If your husband or wife feels more like an enemy, the exhortation still is love them. What does love mean? Love means to choose the highest good for another person. And isn't that what Jesus did when he, at creation, at the incarnation, at the atonement on the cross, he was choosing the very best for us. And so there's no place to settle in this, uh, uh, I guess, you know, these foxholes of conflict where we're just lobbing things back and forth. What we've been called to, again, is love. John 14, uh, 13 and 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's the, that's the trouble right there, isn't it? It's the qualifier. You know, if he says, you know, a commandment that I give you, that you love each other the way Peter and John love each other. Well, I think I can do that. I can do that. I can do Peter and John type love. But what about this? The love we've been called to is not Peter and John love. 
The love we've been called to is to love as I have loved you. This is the standard. This is the way that you walk it out. That you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not any old kind of love. Not mere men walking kind of love. But the kind of love that's demonstrated in Christ who chose us first. Who pursued us. Who's gracious and forgiving. This is the kind of love that we should have. So lest there be any uh, thought, well, you know, the church just fights or we're just conflict in our marriage or these relationships with that brother and sister, that's just the way it is. No, it's a problem. It's a problem to have that. And he addresses, he goes, where does this come from? And he answers still in verse, into verse one and into verse two, where do they come from? Well, from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. So conflict comes from ungodly desires. Is it the only uh, answer for conflict? Is it the only reason for conflict? I imagine, I, haven't, I didn't ponder that much, but I imagine you can find some other um, ideas that maybe are out there. But this certainly is going to be the majority of where conflicts come from is when I have ungodly desires and I'm going to pursue them no matter what. I have to get it. I've got to reach out and grab that thing and it doesn't matter if I've got to walk over you or your family or your business or anybody else. I'm going to get what I want because I need to be satisfied. The, the underlying statement here is they're not content. There's not a peace within them. And so there's a, this wrangling that they feel going on in their life and these desires the covetousness um you know desires for pleasure they're gonna go get them and if i hurt you along the way well i'm sorry i mean i'm you know, i gotta look out for number one if i don't look out for myself who's gonna look out for me and we have an answer for that don't we his name is jesus is gonna look out for you and he's gonna take care of you and he's going to protect you so this is where it comes from, ungodly desires. So they, it's like, why is there so much chaos? Because you're not content in the Lord and you're trying to find contentment in ungodly things. Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life for it is in your presence that is the fullness of joy. When we are satiated in the presence of God, everything else is able to be endured or even becomes more beautiful. But when we're not satisfied in the Lord, when we're not meeting with him, and we feel the grind of our soul and our spirit, and it's just not satisfied, it just, there's desire for stuff, there's desire for things, and there's this, maybe nobody knows it, maybe you hide it well with the smile and, you know, the laughter and all the rest, but inside, man, it's just, it's tearing you up. There's something that you're trying to get. Well, what you need is to be satisfied in the Lord. You know, when you're, con when you're on E, like your, your contentment gauge, when it's on empty, nothing will satisfy you. It doesn't matter how good it is. It will not satisfy beyond that moment. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, driven and um, found yourself in a place, not like you forgot to get gas and you ran out of gas on you know, in town or something like that, but like you're on a road trip and you can't find a gas station. Has anybody ever gone through that before? That, that gets scary. And when, it, when it's starting to get dark, it's even worse. And when you're way away from home, it's, it, it's even worse yet. 
Rebecca and myself, um, the first couple of years of our marriage, we lived in Australia. And um, so on one of our anniversaries, um, she begged me to go deep sea fishing. And um, <laughs> what can I say? She's a fisherwoman. I just, you know, <laughs> who was I to say no? And so we went, we went deep sea fishing. Probably the worst deep sea fishing experience of my life. We feared for life. We had, it was crazy. Ask me later. But um, so we, it was just going to be a short little trip uh, down to Bateman's Bay. We were living in Australia, uh, Sydney, Australia, and then we are going to go back up. And we got back to the room that night, probably just impressed that she was willing to go deep sea fishing. And I said, why don't we just drive down to the Great Bite of Australia? Uh, that's the very southern part. Let's just go see it. I don't know how much longer are we going to be here. We don't know. And we're like, let's do it. So we got in our 1978 Celica, as they call it down there. And we drove. And when we got tired, we pulled in a rest stop, pulled the seats back, went to sleep, got up, kept on driving. And we're, we're doing this, trying to get down to the, see all these scenic sites and, you know, Phillip Island, all these wonderful places. So we are in this last stretch. And, of course, we don't know the area. There, forget, you know, your phone. There's no phone that's going to tell you where gas stations are. You're just driving through. And um, we're trying to get to this, this one area. I don't remember exactly where it was, but the sun was going down, and we were low on gas. And every gas station we came to was closed. Every gas station. Now, when that happens, you start to notice everything. It's like, not another hill. No, not another hill. It's going to take more gas. And it's like, you come into another town. It's like, closed again. What do we, you know, and I mean, I... In my mind, I'm, I'm sure not her, she, she, was, she believed it was going to work out. She's like, what are you worried about? I was convinced we were going to run out of gas. Out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And, um, and so everything became more stressful. Every town that didn't have it, every kilometer, every closed gas station. But if I would have had a full tank, all of those things wouldn't have mattered at all. If somebody else would have been stressing, I said, well, you should have planned better. You know, you should have filled up the tank before you, you did that. I mean, that's how we are, right? You should, have, you should have planned better. But I didn't plan better. And, um, you know, I'm like, we are going to run out of gas. I can't wait to get to heaven to find out if a miracle was performed or not because we went a long, long way and we were praying. We were praying in tongues. I don't know. We were just like, Jesus, please don't let this happen here. But that's a picture of what happens when we are not content. When your contentment level is on E, it doesn't matter. Everything in life is just another mile. It's another closed gas station. And it just it, the problem is accentuated. And for this group, rather than turning to the Lord, they began to say, oh, I'm going to handle it myself. I'm going to handle it myself. I'm going to do what I need to do. Now, quick word to those that are on the other side of that person who is not content, and it was trying and driving and making life miserable and causing fights and wars all around you. I, I'm not going to develop this. Just write this down. Forgive, be merciful, be gracious. That's the word of the Lord. You can, I can prove that any, any place in Scripture, right? Old Testament, New Testament. Forgive, be merciful, be gracious. And, um, you know, I, I just, I'm, a message is coming on this, and I'm just going to say it right here. We live in a cancel culture, but we are a redemption culture. Don't pick up the ways of the world. Well, they deserve it. Yeah, so do you. So do I. 
And we should be very glad that the Lord is not you know, forgiving us the way we forgive people. What would it look like? So anyways, forgive, be merciful, be gracious. Because I know some of you are in a difficult place. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's move on into verse 2. Um, we see that they have a failure to trust God for um, their needs. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You don't pray. You don't submit yourself to the lordship of God Almighty and say, what I need, Lord, is this. And then trust him to bring that thing into your life and to, to, to satisfy that, to bring, you know, whether it's a physical provision or whether it's a person uh, provision in your life, whether it's circumstantial, you don't trust God. And so you don't ask. And so you have these desires and you're lusting and you're coveting and you're trampling people to get it. But what you ought to be doing is praying. But you don't trust God. You don't think that he can show up. And this is so important for us to see. Often we think of prayer as just the physical side of, and Lord, by the way, I need ABC and one, two, three, preferably by the end of the day. And we just kind of, we bark out our orders to Almighty God of what we need. But that's not what prayer is. Prayer is certainly petitioning. Prayer is certainly bringing our needs before him and saying this is, this is it. But there is a lot more than me just saying those are the things I want and need. It speaks of a, a surrender. It speaks of I will submit myself to the Lord. I'm going to look to him to supply. And so we, well, in our prayers we're saying, Lord, I, my eyes are upon you. My expectation is upon you. Lord, give me what I need. And Lord, if you don't, then, then give me the grace to endure what I, what I don't have that is going to have to be made up some other way. Give me faith to trust in you. And Lord, and if, I, if what you're going to, I'm asking for is not what you want, I don't want it because I am submitted to you. That's the prayer. It's, it's not you know, seeking to change the heart and the mind of God to get what you want. It's going in prayer to have your heart and mind changed to align with the kingdom of God so that we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we have that mentality of get done in my life and around my life what you're wanting to do and we come in prayer, now we can actually have our needs met. And we'll find satisfaction. And we're going to have that encounter with the Lord. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who's, who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for a bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You have a good heavenly father, and he wants to give to you. And you need to seek, and you need to ask, and you need to knock. But you know, I, I do believe that, you know, if you listen uh, to sermons around promises of just ask the Lord and he'll give to you, or you read you know, uh, writings about this, there is a, a lot of time that is spent trying to qualify these open-ended requests that are before the Lord. And I understand it because it's like, well, why haven't I? I've asked, I've sought, I've knocked, I haven't got it. Why is that? And so we want to know. We're also worried about abuse that takes place. But I, I think the simple answer is this. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to the Sadducees. 
He's not, you know, referring, speaking to the zealots that want to overthrow the government. He's speaking to men and women who have committed their lives to following him, who said, Lord, I will deny myself and I will take up my cross and I will follow you. And to those people, he says, you can ask whatever you want and I'm going to do it because I know who you are and I know what your priorities are. I know that you have kingdom value priorities. You have left all to follow me. You left your boats, you left your nets, you left your families, you are locked in. So for you who have the priorities of the kingdom, ask what you want and it'll be given to you. And there's a kind of baked into this idea the priorities of the kingdom and the person who is asking. So he doesn't feel the necessity to put all kinds of qualifications upon it. But this is the relationship we have with the Lord. And the, when we come to the place where we are aligned with the heart and the mind and the kingdom and the purposes of God, you're going to see answers to your request. Why don't we pray? Well, we don't want his answers. I don't want it. I know, I, I know your word and I know what you're going to do and I don't want that. Or we think, well, he'll do it, but it's probably not going to be enough. It's probably not going to really satisfy. Or... I'm so busy, I didn't even stop to think to ask. There could be all kinds of reasonings that we have. So, moving on from this point, though. Lacking fulfillment, we resort to getting our needs met in our own way, and that results in fighting when we should be coming to the Lord and praying. And just saying, Lord, I want what you want. And when we don't do that, then there's all kinds of conflict all around us. Verse 3, still on the topic of prayer, he talks about the misuse of prayer. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. So when you do ask, you're still carnally minded. You're still fleshly minded. You're treating you know, me as a genie in the bottle that you're going to just you know, command and demand and to accomplish your purposes and your will. That's not what it's for. You're asking amiss. The purposes of prayer is to achieve the priorities of the king. And as a disciple of his, there will be things that come into my life, physical in nature, spiritual in nature, and I can ask him, and he says he will do them. But there is a misuse of prayer. Of course, regarding sin in our heart would be a misuse of prayer. And he says, by the way, the Lord doesn't hear the prayers of those who regard iniquity in their heart. And so um, he, he exhorts them to move on. And, and to think about what are their motives, what are they really after when they pray. Lord, I pray you would give me this car because, well, Lord, if you give me a car, I could bring people to church. And um, I don't know if you noticed it lately, but Lord, there's fewer people at church than ever before. The polls are out. So I want a car. And I don't want a bad car. I want a nice car, Lord, because a nice car will make more people want to get in than, and we, you know, what are our motives? Why are we praying for what we're praying for? And they can become so carnal and, and selfish-minded. So be careful of that. Verse 4, he, he, it, this is an abrupt change in, as we're reading. And it is certainly meant to shock the senses. He's going to talk about the hostilities that this group had with God. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. Did you know that somebody could be an enemy of God? Did you know that a loving God, creator God, has enemies? He's telling us right here. 
And the reason for this enmity, this, you know, they, were, they had broken relationships with each other, but the bigger problem is they had a broken relationship with God, right? That's why they had broken relationships with each other. If the, if the vertical relationship is not right with God, then the horizontal relationships are going to be impacted negatively. So they have a conflict um, with the Lord, and the reason is, is because they've made the world their friend. Now, don't think of, hey, I've got some you know, people that I really like that are, that are not believers and outside the church. No, 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 we're not talking about that kind of worldly connection. We're talking about a carnal, fleshly prioritizing of the ungodly pursuits of this world. And that we love the world and we're enamored with the world and we want to be like the world. We want what they have. We want to talk like them. We want to walk like them. We want the things that they want. This, the Lord says, I find this offensive. I find it offensive that you care for that which stands against me. The world hates me. The world crucified me. The world doesn't want my name to even be mentioned. And yet, this is what you want to align yourself with. And he says, adulterers and adulteresses. Now, I don't think he's referring to a uh, marital unfaithfulness. He's speaking of their spiritual unfaithfulness. And the same way God rebuked um, his wife Israel in the Old Testament for going after the uh, idols and worshiping them and how that was a spiritual adultery, it's that that's in focus, that we as a bride of Christ would have eyes for something other than groom Jesus. We can look right past Jesus out into the world and say, that is really what I desire. That is really what I want. So this is, this is the sadness. And 1 John 2, 15 through 17 gives us a pretty good description of what the world system is that is being referred to. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So very similar you know, teachings between these two books. So what is the world? Three things. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So there's a lot of similarities between these two passages. We're talking about lust, talking about you know, loving the world, being at odds with God. But what is the lust of the flesh? It's the desire for ungodly pleasure. What is the lust of the eyes? It's desire for possessions, materialism that's controlling, it's covetousness. And then it's the pride of life. It's that desire for position and prestige among uh, groups of people, and I'm willing to compromise. And this is what James is saying. You love this stuff. This has become the priorities of your life, and it's made you have this broken relationship with God. Let me read to you this quote from William MacDonald about the world. He says, The world does not mean the planet on which we live or the world of nature about us. It is the system which man built for himself in an effort to satisfy the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. In this system, there's no room for God or his son. It may be the world of art, culture, education, science, or even religion, but it is a sphere in which the name of Christ is unwelcome or even forbidden, except, of course, as an empty formality. When that becomes what we really want to align ourselves and what we want our lives to be connected with, the Lord says, 
I'm at odds with you. I find that offensive. The Lord does not want us to have this relationship with the world. He wants it to be solely Him. You know, in the world um, of Christendom, we may find people that are happy to approve of carnality and ungodliness and half-hearted commitment to Jesus. But Jesus said, if you don't love me with your whole heart, don't love me at all. Don't follow me. I'm not going to do this. If you love your family more than me, then you're not worthy of me. He wants a whole man, a whole woman to be completely devoted to him. And he is creator God. He is your redeemer. He, he is worthy of that kind of devotion. And we see in verse 5 that God wants friendship with us. Now, this is a difficult verse to translate. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to bring you to the conclusion that I believe that it is speaking of how there, within us, God has placed this desire, um, this spirit within us to do the right thing and to be connected, to have friendship with him. God desires friendship. Let's read verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You feel the yearning of the spirit of God within you if you're a follower of Christ. You feel it. When you're contemplating other pursuits or other ideas, or maybe it's not even like worldly, it's just like it's something that God doesn't have for you. And you can sense the Spirit of the Lord shutting that down and leading you in a different direction, trying to align yourself with the things that He wants for you. And you sense this. But I want you to just ponder that for a moment. Who are we? That God would work that work in our heart and our life. That we would feel the spirit of the living God saying, no, don't go that way. Come this way. And we could feel the jealous yearning of God. Well, jealousy is bad. Well, only if it's used in a negative way, right? But it's intense desire for a thing. And the Lord has intense desire for you to be his friend. And who is God that he would have to come to us and call us into that? I mean, we... You know, there's none that seek after God, no, not one. He sought after us. Oh, the love and the kindness and the patience of the Lord. And if you are a child of God, then you have felt this love and this tug on your heart. Now, they were out in the world. They were not meeting, you know, spending time with the Lord, being satisfied in the Lord. This translated into all kinds of fights because their gauge was on empty and they were trampling one another. But they should have been walking closely with the Lord and enjoying that friendship. And it's not too much. It's not too much because verse 6 says what? We'll end here. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this incredible high and lofty call to be loyal and committed totally to Jesus Christ, the Lord gives us the grace to walk it out. He gives us what we need to live out faithful friendship to him. And of course, once we have experienced this grace and we're walking this out, it solves the problem of all the conflicts around us as much as it lies within us. People are still going to be people, but we got to deal with ourselves first. When we embrace friendship with God, He's going to help. He's going to give you. And there is so many, and I know there's probably many of you in here right now just like, I just can't do it. I just can't do this Christianity thing. I'm just a failure. I keep on failing. Well, listen, don't be condemned. 
Be broken, be humbled, but don't be condemned. And you can tell the difference between condemnation and brokenness. Because condemnation will send you running from God and will make you feel like he does not love you, he does not want you, there's no place for you, just keep on walking. That's condemnation. But brokenness will bring you before the Lord and you will lift up your hands and say, oh Lord, help me. You, brokenness brings you to Christ. Condemnation sends you running away from Christ. If in your sin and your failure, you're like, God has nothing to do with me, he doesn't want me, this is my last time to come to church, I'm done. No, no, no. That's condemnation. That's not the voice of the Lord speaking to you. That's the voice of Satan. God is calling you to draw near. And, you know, God does not resist the broken. God does not resist the humble. He gives more grace, more favor, more ability to walk out. But it's, it's this place of brokenness that we all need to learn to live at that place. You know, we used to sing this um, song, and one of the lines was that, you know, sweetly broken. And it is a sweet thing to be broken by the Spirit of God in his presence. Because then he will give us what we need to raise us up. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. When you are just crushed and broken, the Lord is right there. But the proud, well, he resists the proud, right? He resists the proud. Isaiah 66, 2. For all, the, for all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But here, here's what I want you to see. But on the one, but on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of contrite spirit and he who trembles at my word. That's, that's where we need to be. Those that are trembling before the word of the Lord. Lord, what do you say? What do you want? I, I, I bow before your will and your word, Lord, and in that place of brokenness. I think there's so much of us that fights against brokenness. There's so much of us that resists this idea of being humbled. We want to be self-made men. We want to hold it together. We got to pick myself up. But in spiritual matters, you and, and, and all of us need to learn to be broken and just to come before him and say, Lord, I need that grace to walk it out. I haven't figured out Christianity. I haven't figured out, you know, everything there is to know. Lord, I still need your grace. All right, so I've been walking with the Lord for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years or 70 years. Lord, I still need your grace upon me each and every day. And, and so we come with a humble heart before God and say, help me, Lord. Dispense grace upon this life, that favor, that help, that aid. When we stop praying for that, this is when we will be humbled and we will find ourselves at that spot. But boy, so much easier just to be humbled um, in the presence of the Lord than to be humbled by our foolish circumstances. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we're going to share in communion here this morning as well. Lord, we want to look and identify that corruption and those that pleasure-seeking lust that's just destroying relationships around us. Lord, help us to lay this down, to be broken and humbled by it, not to excuse it or justify it. Help us to find, Lord, that contentment in your ways and through prayer and surrender to you. Lord, we want friendship with you to be the highest priority of our life. How can it be anything other than the highest priority? 
Lord, you are of such character, of such worth, of such value. Experiences with you are of such beauty, Lord. How can it be anything but our highest desire is to draw near to you and develop that relationship? Before we take communion, I'll just give you a moment to, to deal with those things. If there's some kind of covetousness or lust, even, you know, wrong desires that you've been, you, you've just been, man, like a mad woman or mad man after those things, and it's just destroying everything around you, conflict after conflict. Acknowledge before the Lord that it's sin. Acknowledge that it's in His presence that you're going to find fullness of joy. It's in prayer with Him that you're going to be filled up and be made content. Maybe you've drifted in your relationship with the Lord and oh, it's a relationship but it's not a friendship. It's become something else. And what the Lord wants is friendship with you. Lord, pour your grace out upon us. Mend hearts, mend relationships. Lord, may we find the strength and that favor that you're so quick to give to the brokenhearted. We thank you that you are not tight-fisted, Lord, with us, but you're you're open-handed. That you have a soft place in your heart and mind for those that walk humbly before you.